Welcome to Saturday evening Torah class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 43, Genesis chapter 49. Well, last week we finished examining the cross-handed blessing of Jacob as told in Genesis 48. And this was a prophetic blessing that was made upon Ephraim and Manasseh. But the primary target of this blessing was Ephraim. And we discovered that Ephraim would in some way, not yet fully clear, be a blessing to the Gentile world. And as we looked yet again at Ezekiel 37, we learned why the prophecy that Ephraim and Judah would be reunited in the land of Israel, never to be removed from that land, had everything to do with what we're witnessing today in our time. And I have to notice that, that as the, the tour group that just came back in the last few days, what they witnessed matched the one that the rest of you that had gone with me just a few weeks ago noticed, and that is the walls between Jew and Gentile, Christian and Jew, are just dissolving at light speed. It, it, it's an amazing thing. This week we're going to look at another completely separate set of blessings made by Jacob. Now recall that we are speaking of a time when the 12 tribes of Israel were in Egypt. That's the time of this blessing. Joseph was still the vizier of Egypt and Israel were honored guests of Pharaoh. Okay, so what's probably in a time frame of 1700 to 1750 BC when the events of Genesis 48 and 49 occur. Now in Genesis 49, we're going to look at the destinies as described in the form of blessings which were prophetically called out for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now we've come a long way, haven't we? Long way. In earlier parts of Genesis, we saw Israel created by God via giving Jacob a name transplant to Israel. All right. And now we will see prophecies concerning the future of the individual tribes that he spawned called out hundreds of years before their fulfillment was to take place. Now much of what we're going to learn about them is already fulfilled prophecy as we stand today. Right. What we can take from all this is the absolute inerrancy and the unbelievably literal nature of Bible prophecy. And that's important to us to understand in our times because there are still many prophecies about the tribes of Israel that are in the process of being fulfilled right now and others that soon will be. Now true enough, some of these prophecies are a little bit obscure and their meaning is somewhat cloudy, but that veil is really starting to lift. Right. I think that if you pay close attention 
to what we'll study about in regards to these tribes, if you've been paying real close attention, the book of Revelation in particular is going to have newer meaning to you. Okay. Recall that last week, for instance, we discovered that the makeup of the 12 tribes of Israel looks quite different in Revelation 7 than it does in the Torah. With Ephraim and Dan being removed in Revelation and Joseph and Levi being plugged back in. Okay. Now as we read through Genesis 49, we need to put all of it in proper perspective. What Jacob was pronouncing was overall pictures of these tribes. These were not prophecies about things that they would necessarily do. They were prophecies about what each of these tribes would become. Okay. Jacob would pronounce what each of these tribes' characteristics and attributes would be over the long haul. Okay. Not exactly how they would behave at some given moment in time. Though, you know, we can see moments, and we will see moments as we move forward, when a certain one of the tribes eerily reflected the blessing that Jacob gave it. You know, and we need to keep in mind, as I said earlier, that it was more than 3,500 years ago that Jacob made these pronouncements concerning what the traits of the descendants of his sons who were gathered around his deathbed would look like if one could look at the history of each tribe from beginning to end. And let's remember from here on when the Bible speaks of one of the twelve Israelite tribes such as Reuben for instance or Judah or Ephraim it's not speaking about the destiny of that particular man. Okay? Because these men, these twelve sons of Jacob were long dead before the individual tribes that went by their names even grew large enough to assume these identifiable characteristics that we're going to read about here in Genesis 49. Rather, the Bible is speaking of the thousands and millions of descendants of these men who stayed together in family groups called tribes over the ages. This tribal structure was the typical social structure then and it might surprise you to know that the largest part of the world population today is still tribal. Okay, So far from tribalism being a thing of the past it is alive and well and how it operates has everything to do with the intractable troubles we face in the Middle East okay, as well as the horrible genocides that we hear about from time to time in modern-day Africa. Okay, let's read Genesis 49 together. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 49. Then Yaakov, Jacob, called for his sons. And he said, Gather yourselves together and I will tell you what will happen to you in the Ahdorit Hayamim, in the world to come. Assemble yourselves and listen. 
sons of Jacob. Pay attention to Israel, your father. Reuben, you're my firstborn, my strength, my, the first fruits of my manhood. Though superior in vigor and power, you are as unstable as water. So, your superiority will end because you climbed into your father's bed and you defiled it. He climbed onto my concubine's couch. Shimon and Levi are brothers related by weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let my honor not be connected with their people. For in their anger they killed men, and at their whim they maimed cattle. Cursed be their anger, for it's been fierce. Their fury, for it's been cruel. I will divide them in Jacob, and I will scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers will acknowledge you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. My son, you stand over the prey. He crouches down and stretches like a lion, like a lioness. Who dares to provoke him? The scepter will not pass from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his legs until he who, uh, comes to whom obedience belongs. And it is he whom the peoples will obey. Tying his donkey to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice grapevine, he washes his clothes in wine. His robes in the blood of grapes, his eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Now, Zebulun will live at the seashore, with ships anchoring along his coast and his border at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down in the sheep sheds. On seeing how good is settled life and how pleasant the country, he will bend his back to the burden and submit to forced labor. Dan will judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan will be a viper on the road, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider falls off backward. Oh, I wait for your deliverance, Adonai. Gad troop, a troop will troop on him, but he will troop on their heel. Asher's food is rich. He will provide food fit for a king. Naphtali is a doe set free that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful plant, a fruitful plant by a spring with branches climbing over the wall. The archers attacked him fiercely, shooting at him, pressing him hard, but his bow remained taut. His arms were made nimble by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob from there, from the shepherd, from the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, by El Shaddai who will bless you with blessings from heaven above. Blessings from the deep lying below. Blessings from the breasts in the womb. The blessings of your father are more powerful than the blessings of my parents extending to the farthest of the everlasting hills. They will be on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the prince among his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey, in the evening still dividing the spoil. 
All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is how their father spoke to them and blessed them, giving each his own individual blessing. Then he charged them all as follows. I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my ancestors in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hitti. Okay. The cave in the field of Machpelah by Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought together with the field from Ephron the Hitti as a burial place belonging to him. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Yitzhak and his wife Rivka. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it, which was purchased from the sons of Heth. When Jacob had finished charging his sons, he drew his legs up into, the bread, into his bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. You know, like a modern day family sitting around a table while an executor reads the will of the departed one who had held sway on all the family wealth and power, there, there was this air of anticipation among these 12 brothers. The 12 sons of Jacob were all anxiously waiting to hear what their particular blessing might be. And like the family at the reading of the will, some were going to be pleasantly surprised at their portion, while others would be drained with disappointment. Okay. And still others would walk away content, however modest their lot. Now later on, after it all had time to sink in, hard feelings would also likely result as some of those sons of Jacob who had received the lesser blessings burned with envy against those who received the greater. Of course, those who received the greatest blessings looked down pretty smugly upon those who never deserved as much as they had rightfully received right, in their eyes. And you know, time doesn't necessarily solve these hurts and rejections. Sometimes it can actually magnify the animosity. Okay. Such would be the case as we follow the history of Israel from this point forward. Because we're going to find some of the tribes of Israel will have a long-term hatred against some of the other tribes of Israel. And at times they'll actually war against each other. Okay. Now the twelve sons of the last patriarch, Jacob, called Israel, gathered around their father who had just enough strength left in that aged body to perform his final duty on earth. And they listened intently as that all-important blessing begins predictably with Reuben, the firstborn, and it progresses in approximate but not exact uh, accordance with the order of their birth. Now in verse 1, we find Jacob saying something that has an unclear meaning to scholars even to this day. He says, that I may tell you what shall befall you in the days to come. Some versions say in the latter days, still others say um, in the last days. Now the Hebrew word used here, the phrase, is akaret hayamim. And in most, its most literal sense, it means in the end of days. All right. Now some rabbis and scholars say that this speaks of the time 
when Israel's days in Egypt would be over. Okay, and Moses leads them out. Others say this is speaking of the latter days and the end times of the world, all right, uh, as we're more prone to call it. Okay, they have pretty reasonable arguments for both sides of this. Probably Jacob's sons were certainly not thinking in terms of hundreds and thousands of years into the future. Right? But as with every pronouncement in the Bible that is of God, as these as were these blessings, we must remain aware that there is simultaneously a physical and a spiritual manifestation going on. Okay. Certainly, Jacob's sons could only see the physical, the material side of this. But of course, we, with hindsight, can also see the spiritual aspects of this. Well, about a thousand years after this blessing, ten of the twelve tribes, all but Judah and Benjamin in that special category of tribes, the Levites, were going to vanish. All right. Therefore, one would have to think that indeed the meaning of Jacob's words, the end of days, spoke of a time before they vanished. A time that represented the state of each tribe in the years that would lead up to their exodus from Egypt. This is opposed to Jacob's words referring to the end times of the world. Yet, as we're just now suddenly aware that Ephraim, who represents basically all those currently lost or now found tribes, is supposed to mysteriously reappear in some form in the end times. And this leaves open the possibility that indeed Jacob did mean end times of the world. Of course, it could mean both. Prophecy has a way of doing that, right? of pointing to more than one time. Okay. Likely it has some elements of the past and the future. Bible prophecy tends to create patterns as much as they foretell future events. Okay. For the present, I'm just going to kind of leave this as it is, and perhaps over the next few months and years, God will make this more clear to all of us. Now with that, let's examine the blessing given to each son in turn. So let's just kind of re-examine for a moment. I'm going to reread uh, Genesis 49, verses 3 and 4, which is the blessing of the first son. It says, Reuben, you're my firstborn, my strength, the firstfruits of my manhood, Though superior in vigor and power, you're unstable as water. So your superiority will end because you climbed into your father's bed and you defiled it. You climbed into my concubine's couch. Now, though we're not really told of the reaction to these blessings from any of the sons, it shouldn't be too hard to imagine the crushing blow just dealt to Reuben. Okay. Because at this instant, humiliated in front of his brothers, he was disowned from his natural position as the firstborn of Israel. Okay. I mean, one could imagine that he should have suspected such a result was going to happen, particularly since his younger brother Judah had been relied on more and more by Jacob for leadership over the past several years. Reuben 
knew the wrongs he'd committed against his father, but hit with this unalterable finality of it all, a brutally depressed Reuben had to be the result. Jacob says of Reuben, you're as unstable as water. You shall not, you shall not have preeminence because you defiled my bed. In other words, you do not have the necessary attributes to lead Israel, so she'll, you'll not receive the firstborn blessing. Now this bed-defiling incident is recalled for us in Chronicles. Okay, please turn to the scripture. All right, First Chronicles um, 5. First Chronicles chapter 5. If you've got the complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1155. Okay, 1 Chronicles chapter 5. I'm only going to read the first couple of verses, but they're hard-hitting. 1 Chronicles chapter 5. I'm going to read the first couple of verses. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, he was the firstborn. But because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, though not in such a way as for him to be regarded in the genealogy as firstborn. For Judah became greater than his brothers in as much as the ruler came from him. Nevertheless, the birthright went to Joseph. Now, if this isn't sound just a tad bit confusing, you're not reading it right. Okay? Because right here it seems to indicate he's just given the firstborn blessing to two different people. To Joseph and to Judah. We'll get, we'll get there. Now, in a long way around the barn, this verse tells us a couple of things. First, that the cause of Jacob passing over Reuben was that he had slept with Jacob's concubine, who was Bela. Straightforward enough. But what also happened was, in essence, the honors and blessings that traditionally go to the firstborn got split between two other sons, Joseph and Judah. Or as we saw in Genesis 48, actually the firstborn rights got split between Ephraim, Joseph's son, and Judah. So the chronicler tells us that the earthly reason behind Jacob's cross-handed blessing upon Joseph's sons was at least partially to disinherit Reuben because of what Reuben had done. Of course, God had other reasons as well for this scenario to unfold this way. Now, follow me carefully on this. There are two major components that make up the traditional firstborn blessing. First was the double portion which meant that the firstborn was to receive two shares or more of the tribe's wealth instead of the one that he was 
entitled to. Second was that the firstborn was typically given the authority to lead, to rule over the whole tribe. Okay? If all had gone as normal, Reuben would not only have been the leader of the tribe of, uh, of his own birth, that his own birth had created, in other words, the tribe of Reuben, right? he would have become leader over all of Israel. He would have ruled in his father, Jacob's place, over the full 12 tribes. And, in addition to that ruling, he would have received a double portion. Twice as much of the tribe's wealth as any of his brothers received. Reuben got none of this. Instead, we see that Joseph, Joseph would receive the double portion by means of his sons Ephraim and Manasseh, and Judah would receive the right to rule and to lead. Now let me tell you something. This is a very strange action that Jacob took in splitting the firstborn blessing. But also keep in mind a very important element that the writer of Chronicles explains. Genealogically speaking, bloodlines in other words, Judah's family was the one who would carry forth authority. So in matters of Israel where genealogy was the deciding factor, bloodlines, such as who would be the first legitimate king of Israel, David, and who would be king forever, Yeshua, it would have to be Judah's bloodlines that would be used. Not Joseph's, not Reuben's. Okay? Yet in a strange way, Joseph also received the firstborn blessing. Now let me show you how this all happened. Now here's the thing. We often see the Bible use the terms double portion blessing, birthright, and firstborn blessing interchangeably. Okay, But we need to understand that even though in the common vernacular of that day, the term double portion was used synonymously with firstborn blessing, technically the double portion was only part of the overall firstborn blessing. It was assumed, according to tradition, that whoever was awarded the firstborn blessing got every element of it that traditionally went with it. That is, whoever received the double portion of the family's wealth also automatically received the right to rule over the tribe. It was just the way it was done. But Jacob did something very novel in splitting that firstborn blessing between two heirs, two sons, two tribes in Israel. Okay? The descendants of Joseph and the descendants of Judah. Now in my opinion, the reason the writer of Chronicles worded these verses in the way he did, this kind of confusing way, all right, is because he didn't fully comprehend what it all meant and what it was all going to eventually lead to. I mean, why was the firstborn blessing divided between two sons? The writer obviously doesn't know because it wasn't usually done that way. Okay? In fact, I'm unaware of anywhere else in the Bible that the splitting of the firstborn blessing, as Jacob did, ever again occurred. 
Okay. This event seems to be completely unique. So all the writer of Chronicles does is to simply assert the facts as he understands them without further explanation. Okay. Now, let's see how Jacob's blessing of Reuben worked out. Okay. The prophecy that Reuben's descendants would be unstable as water, that they would not be leaders. When we search the scriptures we find the tribe of Reuben did not produce one single named military leader. Not a king, not a prophet, not a judge. Okay? Not one of Reuben's descendants are mentioned in the Bible as, as having attained a position, a particular value or honor, nor accomplishing anything of significance. We also find that after the 12 tribes led by Moses, approached the promised land of Canaan, the tribe of Reuben decided not to enter the promised land, but rather to settle for good enough. They took territory as their inheritance on the east side of the Jordan River, outside the land of Canaan. We even find that Reuben's tribe began a steady decline in their population. Okay. Moses was apparently so concerned about the condition of the tribe of Reuben that he prayed in Deuteronomy 33.6 let Reuben live and not die and let not his men be so few. Okay. The tribe of Reuben was destined to become an asterisk in the history of Israel due to Reuben's unstable ways and his sin. Okay. It is a simple yet profound biblical principle that while our sins are most certainly forgiven and paid for through Yeshua, the consequences of our sins can be enduring throughout our lifetimes, on into the lifetimes of our children, to our children's children and beyond. Okay. We may not like it, but it's so. Our sinful ways can introduce characteristics into our families that are so detrimental and long-lasting in their effects. Okay. And all we have to do is live long enough to know the truth of that statement. Okay. Well, next, let's read the prophetic blessings pronounced upon the two tribes of Simeon or Shimon right, and Levi. I'm going to reread a couple of verses here in Genesis. Genesis 49, verses 5 through 7. Genesis 49, verses 5 through 7. Shimon and Levi, or Levi, better, are brothers, related by weapons of violence. Let me not enter their counsel. Let my honor not be connected with their people. For in their anger they killed men. At their whim they maimed cattle. Cursed be their anger, for it's been fierce. Their fury, for it's been cruel. I will divide them in Jacob. I will scatter them in Israel. Another very harsh verdict. Right? And undoubtedly two more stunned inheritors. Okay. Jacob sees his second and third born sons in the same light with similar personal attributes and characteristics. Therefore apparently, and I underline the word apparently, sharing the common destiny. The brothers are brothers in violence. So they'll be brothers in their transgressions. Now, unlike Reuben's primary offense, which was done in secret, okay, Shimon and Levi 
had committed their greatest offense for everybody to see. And they were proud and unrepentant for what they had done to boot. Let's revisit for just a minute what that great offense of Simeon and Levi was as told in Genesis 34. Back up just a few pages to Genesis chapter 34. I'm only going to hit the high points in this. We're not going to read the whole chapter. One time, Dinah, the sister of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the local girls. And Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the local ruler, saw her, grabbed her, raped her, and humiliated her. Moving down a few verses. When Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob restrained himself until they came home. Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him just as Jacob's sons were coming in from the field. When they heard what had happened, the men were saddened and were very angry at this outrage this man had committed against Israel by raping Jacob's daughter, something that is simply not done. Moving down a little further to say verse 13. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor his father deceitfully because he had defiled Dinah their sister. They said to him, we can't do it. That is, we can't allow this marriage all right, uh, the way he wanted to do it because it would be a disgrace to give our sister to someone who hasn't been circumcised. Only on this condition, being circumcised, will we consent to what you are asking, that you become like us having every male among you in the city of Shechem get circumcised. Okay, Then move on to verse 25. On the third day after the circumcision, when they were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Shimon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords, boldly descended on the city, Shechem, and slaughtered all the males. They killed Hamor and Shechem his son with their swords. They took Dinah out of Shechem's house and left. Then the sons of Jacob entered over the dead bodies of those who had been slaughtered and they plundered the city in reprisal for defiling the sister. They took their flocks, cattle and donkeys and everything else, whether in the city or in the field, everything they owned. The children and wives they took captive and they looted whatever was in the houses. But Jacob said to Shimon and Levi, You have caused me trouble by making me stink in the opinion of the local inhabitants, the Canaani and the Prizi. Since I don't have many people, they will align themselves together against me and attack me, and I will be destroyed out in all my household. And they replied, Shimon and Levi replied, Should we let our sister be treated like a whore? See, the primary thrust of this blessing that we just read over Shimon and Levi was that neither Shimon nor Levi would take would partake in the promised land in the same proportion as their brothers. This was a result of their bloodlust and their cruelty, all right, as demonstrated upon the citizens of Shechem. 
They would instead, we're told, be divided in Jacob, scattered in Israel. And that's exactly what took place. But let me give you a hint in advance of what of our look at what happened to Shimon and Levi. Remember that one of God's governing dynamics is to divide. To divide, to separate, to elect. Okay? It's a deceived mankind that looks upon division as an automatic negative. It's not. Now let's look first at Simeon, who would become the smallest tribe by the time of the census of Numbers 26. And like Reuben, they struggled simply to stay in existence and to maintain their own tribal identity. Okay. In a census reported in the early part of the book of Numbers, up around chapter 1 and 2, Simeon is reported to have had a population of 59,300. Within a mere 40 years, however, the census of Numbers 26 shows their population had shrunk by over 50% to only 22,200. Now, just for the sake of clarity, the census would have been only of men, all right, and only of men in the prime and middle portions of their lives. This is often expressed in the Hebrew idiom as men capable of bearing arms. Okay, so this is probably something on the order of men 20 to 50 years old. Males younger and older than this, children, the elderly, the disabled weren't counted, neither were females of any age counted. Further, when we find Moses officiating over the handing out of the tribe's land inheritances, Shimon is given territory within Judah's territory. Notice the map. All this brown territory is Judah's. Look where Simeon is. Right? They're a circle right in the middle. Right? Technically, and more accurately, what Shimon was really given was a handful of cities within Judah's territory. I mean, Shimon's territory was like the, the round bullseye in the center of a target. Okay? They were completely surrounded by the tribe of Judah. Worse yet, the area they occupied within Judah was primarily the Negev, an arid, arid desert region. Okay. Now, Simeon was probably the first tribe to be completely absorbed by all the other tribes. Right? With some of them joining Judah, obviously, right? and others joining what would eventually come to be known as the ten northern tribes, not on this map, uh, of Ephraim. There was even mention in First Chronicles um, of some members of the tribe of Simeon leaving the Holy Land altogether all right, and joining with Edom. Okay, recall that Edom was the descendants of Esau, Jacob's twin brother. Jacob said they'd be scattered. All right, and how true this proved to be. Now Levi, or better, Levi, suffered a similar, though not destructive, fate as concerns land and territory. Levi, as with Simeon, was not given its own territory. Rather, it too was given cities, 48 cities, as a matter of fact, 
but they were located within the, the tribal boundaries of every one of the tribes these cities were. However, Levi was divided and separated out of Israel to become God's priests to himself. Okay? While Simeon was utterly scattered into all the other tribes of Israel. Levi maintained their identity. Simeon lost theirs. Okay? Now often we're going to see in scripture two phrases or sentences back to back that appear to simply be a, an interesting repetition. For instance, like in verse 7 it says, I will divide in Jacob. All right, uh, let me back up. All right. Um, I will divide, I will scatter. Okay. Right. Usually, and most often, this is just a standard Hebrew literary device called a doublet or a couplet. Okay. At other times, though, there is a subtle and important message being introduced, and it is not the same thing being said, just in two different ways. Okay. Um, let me also mention as an aside that whereas particularly in the prophets it looks to be unarguable that there's a lot of repetition in fact it's because of the near impossibility to translate Hebrew word structure into English okay. and one of the reasons that this is so follow me here is because the Bible was originally created in a structure meant to be learned through the spoken word and through hearing. Okay, like little children in elementary school before they can read. I'm sure we've got teachers in here. The, the, the stories and the words and the way they're done are meant to be transmitted from mouth to ear, mouth to ear, mouth to ear. This is as opposed to English, Latin, French, and German translations that were written in a style meant to be absorbed by reading. Okay. Now, while those of us who are certainly not literary professionals, um, the difference between creating a speech designed to be absorbed by the ears versus creating a manuscript designed to be absorbed by the eyes might not seem apparent. There are substantial differences between the two. Okay. Now, it's interesting to notice that even up to our time, the Levites are seen as separate in a very interesting way from the rest of Israel. Jews don't generally regard Levites as Jews, per se. They're separate and distinct. Even if the rest of the world, through ignorance, doesn't make this distinction, God does. And considering where we are in prophetic times, it might be wise for us to understand and acknowledge it because the time is near that the Levites are going to once again play a very prominent role in Judaism where they haven't for a long time. So the end result of Jacob's pronouncements are that the first three brothers, the eldest three, are now dispossessed. <laughs> To them, their blessings must look an awful lot more like a curse. All right. Now we come to the fourth in line, Judah. Let's go back to Genesis 49. All right, and take a look at verses 8 through 12 again. 8 through 12. Judah, your brothers will acknowledge you. 
Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. My son, you stand over the prey. He crouches down and stretches like a lion, like a lioness. Who would dare to provoke him? The scepter will not pass from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his legs, until he comes until he comes to whom obedience belongs, and it is he whom the peoples will obey. Tying his donkey to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice grapevine, he washes his clothes in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes, his eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Now the first thing we notice is that Jacob has a lot more to say to Judah than to Judah's older brothers. Many excellent commentaries now tell us that Judah here receives the firstborn blessing. Well, that's only partially so, as we've just seen. As I mentioned earlier, what Judah actually receives here is only part of the blessing that goes to the firstborn. Since there are two primary elements, again, to the firstborn blessing, receiving the double amount of tribal wealth and the official assumption of the tribal leadership, we see that Judah was only given that second part, tribal authority and leadership. Back in Genesis 48, Joseph was given the other part of that firstborn blessing, the double portion. And this was in the form of making Joseph's two sons equal with all of Jacob's sons. Therefore, Joseph, because he had two sons, and each of them got a full portion, they got two twelfths. They got the double portion. Okay. Judah says is the lion, an ancient symbol of regal status. Okay. Judah is the new leader of Israel. And true to his name, Judah, which means praise, will have the praise of his brothers, it says here, and eventually the whole world, because out of him would come God's anointed kings of Israel and, most importantly, the Messiah. The royal line of David will come from Judah. And the right to rule Israel will remain, it says, with the tribe of Judah until finally, now watch this, look in your verses, it says, until Shiloh comes. Where does it say that? Take, a look, take another look at verse 10. Take a look at verse 10. This is another controversial verse in this chapter. Some Bibles use, like mine, the words, to whom obedience belongs, in place of the Hebrew word that is there, Shiloh. Okay. Now let's take a look at this, because if not at least important, it's pretty darn interesting. The first thing to know is, is that the Hebrew word Shiloh appears in the oldest manuscripts we have. Okay? And in the Septuagint as well, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was created 250 years before Christ. So the word Shiloh, by everything reasonably evident, was part of the original Hebrew text. Now later on in the Old Testament, we're going to see that there is a town in Canaan called Shiloh. Some of you went to visit it a few weeks ago. And it's there that the tabernacle of the wilderness would rest for many years. 
Interestingly, Shiloh will be in the territory of, guess who? Ephraim. Okay. This is actually, Shiloh is the first holy city in the Holy Land. Now, while we usually think of Jerusalem in that regard, in reality, Shiloh, more known to Gentiles as Shiloh, all right, was first. And later, the honor of being the holiest city was transferred to Jerusalem. But even then, Shiloh remained a holy city in Israel for centuries to come, second in holiness only to Jerusalem. Now, some scholars believe that this city of Shiloh is what's being referred to here in this verse, though, of course, it was not yet even in existence at the time of Jacob's blessing. But if we render the meaning of Shiloh in Jacob's blessing to be the name of a future city, first, does it make a lot of sense? What, what's a city got to do with anything? For most certainly the scepter, that is the authority to rule, the symbol of leadership, did not depart from Judah when the city of Shiloh was founded, although it was in the, city, the territory of Ephraim. Nor did Judah's leadership decline as prophesied here. So this cannot be pointing to a city. The next popular explanation is that Shiloh is but a word that has the meaning to whom obedience belongs. So that's why you see that in your Bibles. All right. Now, while this most certainly has the implication of referring to a Messiah, when we say to whom obedience belongs, in order to achieve that meaning, it actually takes assuming that one of the letters in the Hebrew word Shiloh was handed down to us incorrectly. Right, that the Hebrew was actually misspelled. That the Hebrew letter Sheen should have been a scene. Right? And there's no evidence that this was the case at all, even if it does make a nice pat answer to what Shiloh is. The last and most appropriate explanation is that Shiloh is another name for the Messiah. Okay, in other words, Shiloh is a proper noun. In this case, a name. Now, what's kind of ironic is that the previous explanation is an attempt to prove the messianic nature of this verse by modern day Christians who regarded the original Hebrew word Shiloh as having no literal meaning at all that they could discover, so they made one up. All right. Yet, beginning with the most ancient Hebrew commentary in existence called Bereshit Rabbah, okay, the majority of Hebrew sages and scholars from times long past agreed that Shiloh was purely messianic in nature. Okay, and it speaks of the Messiah, Shiloh. So in the end, if Christians had not for the last 1900 years so much animosity towards the Jews, we could have had very early sources that explained that Shiloh was talking about the coming of Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, Now, beginning right here in Genesis 49, then, understand that we have it prophesied that the Messiah will come from the Hebrews, from the nation of Israel, from the tribe of Judah, from the family of David. With the benefit of hindsight, 
we now have, knowing who the Messiah is, it really would not be incorrect to read Genesis 49.10 as completely fulfilled prophecy. The scepter shall not pass from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his legs until it's handed over to Jesus Christ. We can read it that way now. And of course, that rulership has indeed passed to Jesus. One more thing about Judah, and then we'll call it a night. Religious Jews have a big problem today. They continue to assert correctly that the Messiah, or at least one of the Messiahs, because many Jews believe that there will be two, okay, is to be from the tribe of Judah and more precisely from the Jewish royal family of David. But of course, they do not acknowledge that Yeshua, who revealed himself about 30 AD, is that Messiah. So the problem is that when that expected day arrives and a Messiah reveals himself as such, how will the Jews ever be able to prove that it's actually him in the manner that they not only prefer, but what did we read back in Chronicles? That, that this, this Messiahship has to be proved genealogically to be tied to Judah. That while the other ones don't necessarily have to be, this one does. That's what we read in Chronicles. Okay. How are they going to do that by genealogy? Because in 70 AD, the house of records in Jerusalem and every document that existed that approved the lineage of every Jewish family was destroyed by the Romans. Coupled with the nearly 1900 year exile and dispersal that the Jews have suffered through after that time, before return, returning to a reborn Israel in 1948, there's absolutely no way for anyone alive today claiming to be Jewish to prove it genealogically. Can't be proven. Okay. Jesus was able to prove it. And his genealogy has never been right up to this day disputed by the Jews. The one we find in the Bible. Even ultra-Orthodox Jews readily admit that Yeshua of Nazareth existed, that he was of the tribe of Judah, and that he was of the line of David. Okay? Yet due to the blindness that's overcome so many Israelites, they cannot see the reality of Jesus being the Messiah. All right? Or that it is hopeless <laughs> that they could, by their own requirements, ever prove that whoever it is they think will be Messiah actually is. Next week we'll look at the remaining tribe's blessings beginning with the last two children that Leah, Jacob's first wife, bore to him. Okay? That'll do it for tonight.